0: I think the framework we've chosen is something more akin to our our number one responsibility is to raise high-functioning, intelligent, nuanced, loving, service-oriented adults. I think that's really what we're trying to do. And I think there might be an inverse correlation. We think there might be an inverse correlation between safety and that other thing that I just said we want to raise our kids to be, if we isolate our kids in the name of protection and then suddenly expect them to flip a switch at 21 or 26 or whatever and become service-oriented, loving, nuanced, kind, worldly in the best sense of like cultured and open to other ideas, I just, I don't know why we would think that you could turn a switch on that. It's a, its an orientation, it's an enculturation. You have to be nurtured in that. And that nurturing takes, Risk every single day.
1: Okay, let's do this. This is Jeff. And I'm Andre. Are you ready?
2: I'm ready. Love or work.
1: Is anyone listening?
2: No, don't put that on the air.
1: These two people are really, really funny.
2: This one made me cry.
1: World series champion around the entire world. NBA All-Star. We hope you love this interview as much as we did. Love or work. Welcome to the Love or Work Podcast. This is Jeff. And I'm Andre. And we are so thankful you're joining us in this conversation, trying to figure out, is it possible to change the world, stay in love, and raise a healthy family? Easy. Yeah, easy question. We're just working through it.
2: (laughs) Today, we are interviewing Jeremy and Jessica Courtney. They are from Preemptive Love. It is a nonprofit that provides relief to families fleeing war and helps refugees rebuild their lives. They are based in Iraq. And you can look up their information and website at preemptivelove.org.
1: Incredible organization, incredible people. They uh, are living a life that is very courageous. And uh, we're big fans.
2: Oh, my goodness. I love this organization so much. And you should also follow them on Instagram because, oh, their messaging is just spot on about the Middle East Uh, the refugee crisis. Um, It's just, it's beautiful. It's
1: interesting for us walking into this to have a voice in this conversation that's not, that is American, but not coming from an American perspective. They're coming from a perspective in a different place and they see different things than we see every day.
2: I think this is going to be great for listeners. We have so many listeners worldwide which is crazy. Internationally, we have a lot of NGOs listening, a lot of people working overseas, um, because I think they struggle with this tension when your work and your life and your family all become one thing. Yeah. And so uh, definitely this is for you. But Jeff, for those not living overseas as well, what should we be listening for? When
1: you listen to this, I want you to be hearing a couple things. And I want you to be Considering things in a new way, and considering how you might parent differently or walk with your spouse differently given their context, how could it be applied to who you are today and where you do life? Um, the first thing is uh, this whole thing started on nine eleven and um, that experience and how it transformed their life forever. The second thing i just there 's a quote that I wrote down i keep I keep thinking about ever since um, we did this interview, relationships change language. Relationships change language. Um, And third, uh, we asked them what they have learned about raising kids and about marriage from the people they do life with in a different culture. What have they learned from the families in Iraq? And I thought it was a really, really special answer.
2: So beautiful.
1: So here we are. Uh, We're going to listen to Jeremy and Jess from preemptive love.
3: In my mind, we met in this cabin by a lake uh, with a whole bunch of other people. And we just were friends. We just hit it off right then and there.
0: The problem was we both had significant others at that point. And so it was just a strictly professional meeting as professional as two 19 year olds can be. And, and yet we struck up this friendship. We came back to campus and started the school year, our, our second year. And, um, our friendship kind of carried on. We, we would talk every day. I think for a while, we were probably the last person that either person called or talked to at the end of every day. And, uh, I remember one night getting a call late at night and the sort of dark manly voice on the other side of the phone was like, don't ever call my girlfriend again. (laughs) Oh, uh,
2: Jeremy, (laughs) stepping on some toes.
0: (laughs) And, and he was, he was part of the bad boy fraternity. So I had to take it, uh, very seriously. So I respected their relationship and didn't call for a while. And then I remember like it was maybe a full year later, I think, um, after some intramural football game on campus, some friends asked if I wanted to go, you know, to so and so's house. And I was just along for the ride, walked into so and so's house and there Jessica was. And we reconnected for the first time in over a year, I guess.
3: And I think it was that night that we ended up just chatting until two or three in the morning. And towards the end of the night, we were just talking about future stuff. And he was like, you know, it's too bad you want to be a lawyer and I'm going to be a music guy because if not, we could just get married tomorrow. And wow, it putting really, it on wow. strong. No, I think it was it was more like a warning, like <laughs> <laughs> this is not going anywhere because we obviously have two very different futures in mind wow. but from that day
0: forth we're pretty much inseparable. You had just broken up with your boyfriend yeah. of a year or so, year or two, oh, and right. I had broken up with my girlfriend by then and we were inseparable from that night. Got married Two years later, year and a half later.
2: So right out of college, basically got married.
0: We graduated one Saturday and got married the next.
1: That's wow. amazing.
2: And how many years now have you been married?
1: Hold
0: on, doing the quick calculation.
2: Almost 18.
0: <laughs> 18. <laughs> oh my goodness.
1: 18 years. And how many kids do you have? Two. So at that time when you first met, you were like going to be a, a, you said a lawyer and a musician.
2: So yeah, this so, is very separate paths. How did you decide
3: to join your future here? Yeah, Jess. <laughs> Well, I think that that year was a big year um, of learning for me. It was a really significant year for me spiritually. And I just realized I did a lot of searching out who did I want to be and what did I want to do? And did I want to, (laughs) another part of that was, did I want to take on another $160,000 in student debt? And what would that mean for the kind of life that I could lead after law school? And I think I just learned a lot about myself. I, I think it's interesting that we asked 16, 17 year olds to decide what they're going to be when they're 40 um, and that they have to stick on that track because that's the university track that they sign up for and they lose money and credit if they don't continue on that track. Um, and so I think I just had grown up a little bit, knew a little bit more about the world, not, not a lot, but I thought I knew everything. and it just it wasn't really the track that I wanted to be on. So I kind of myself decided that I just needed a little bit more time to figure out who I wanted to be and what I wanted to do. And I continued and finished that degree. And I'm really grateful that I have it. But thankfully, I also didn't take on a ton more debt to become something that I maybe wouldn't have enjoyed as much as what I'm doing now.
0: But I don't know. There was just some kind of inevitability, some kind of draw to the paid professional church world. And, and that was really the divide that Jessica and I were trying to bridge at that point in our relationship. She pursuing this lawyerly um something that I probably really didn't find value in, didn't understand, and, and probably really would have looked at with a with a negative view of it being like worldly or something like that. And then me feeling a sense of like self-righteousness in the world of paid professional church work. That, that was the thing that I think ultimately we were trying to bridge.
2: Wow. So I am so curious of how this all led around to <laughs> what you are doing today.
1: Yes. Yeah. <laughs> because
3: it is so completely opposite. I think it sounds on the surface like it's opposite, but I think that probably the motivations that drove us at that time are exactly what got us where we are right now. Um, I think Jeremy's extremely creative and that creativity has played out in some really different ways throughout our history together. And I think that that creativity just became really others focus in a way of meeting other people's needs. And I think that what drove me to want into wanting to do law was an other people focus. It was this idea that people needed help. And even that there was like chaos around the world that needed peace brought to it, um, I really wanted to work for the U.S. government in Russia. I grew up watching all the submarine movies where Russians were always the bad guys. And so I just really wanted to go be a part of healing that brokenness and that was kind of the path that I thought I had to take to get there. And so, after 9/11 happened, we we were just married and we had both just had our birthdays. Jeremy's birthdays on September 9th and and it was it was we we were just really adults, you know, just trying to figure out the world together as a new couple and that happened and it it really flipped our world upside down like it did so many other people's. And so we had a decision at that moment of who are we going to be and how are we going to walk forward and how were the giftings that we had and the desires that we had going to be used in kind of this new world. Would now be a good time for me
0: to say that my birthday's on September 10th? Oh
3: no. Uh, oh my goodness. <laughs> <laughs> you should celebrate you on the 9th and then you could have celebrated on the 10th. <laughs>
1: That's hilarious. Okay. So then, so you kind of uh, go back to what you were saying. I love that question you asked, you know, in a new world that we were in, who are we going to be? How are we going to use our gifts?
0: Well, I, I think Jessica's point is really important. We came of age in that um, post-Cold War sort of era where where the Russians were the bad guys in everything and all the spy movies and all the actors and everything that we watched cast that group, that country, that way of thinking, that economic model, that government model as as the big nefarious bad guy on on the stage of our life and with September 11th, everything changed that the the big global villain suddenly Russia was out communism was out and islam took the stage uh, al qaeda took the stage osama bin laden took the stage on September 11th and we were still young enough to reorient our entire lives around that new global reality that new global narrative. We had some school debt, but we didn't own a house on September 11th. We hadn't landed some major career by September 11th. We were both in grad school taking on new debt, but we were able to pivot our lives fairly quickly, I think, and join in the national response to Islam, to radical Islamic terror, to terrorism, to fundamentalism, all the various things and iterations of how this conversation has evolved, we were there for it. We wanted to be there for it. And so I think we raised our hands in the wake of those, those terror attacks. And along with many people who enlisted in that nationalistic response, we raised our hands. And rather than pick up our guns and go to a local uh, army recruitment station, uh, we, we kind of launched out in a a different way. But I, I think at the end of the day, I now understand it myself, at least. I, I feel like we were swept up in a kind of nationalistic response to terror.
2: What changed in that? I mean, I know in the sense of you didn't take up your guns and go, but how did your approach um, to Islam and to um, that differ than what we were hearing on media, what we were hearing Was it the idea of moving there and meeting people and seeing the culture or, you know, how did, because your your language toward uh, the Islam group and your language towards everything is so different than what we hear portrayed in media.
3: I think that we were very fortunate to be a part of a group from our church who um, we were part of a small group and people from that small group had been to Turkey in the past. They went in 98 right after the big earthquake in Istanbul to help people there. And so they were able to offer a different story than, than what the news and the media were offering. It wasn't, it wasn't so simple as they're the bad guys. They only want to hurt us. We were also hearing about personal one-on-one relationships. Um, of people who really welcomed our friends and cared for them and worked shoulder to shoulder with them in the rubble after the earthquake. And so because we had two different stories to listen to, um, and we were already kind of, um, we'd already made this decision to be people that love and not people that hate, that we didn't have only one path laid out for us. We knew and we, we took Jesus' words very seriously, that we're called to love our enemies. And so we found ourselves every day that week with those people who had been to Turkey, with our friends who knew Muslims, just praying that that God would intervene in this process and praying for Muslim people, praying for Al-Qaeda, praying for Osama bin Laden. And that did something in our lives. Like we didn't have the right information, but we were surrounded by people who had the right information and we had already decided the posture we wanted for our lives. And I think that that's what led us to ultimately being willing to move to a place like Turkey, move to a place like Iraq, where where we could listen and we could learn a different side of the story and we could play a different role in the story.
2: When did you decide that living internationally was going to be permanent? I mean, we always hear about people that go and visit and take an experience back home with them and come back. But how did this become permanent for you and part of... Your narrative of like, no, this is our life work here.
0: We always um, have had a sense that our work, our life, our message was at least partially about continuing to transform the conversation in America at home. And in order to be effective in that, I think we continue to feel that we had to earn credibility to, to be able to challenge narratives back home. Somewhere along the way, I think we started to realize, perceive that you couldn't just jaunt out into some other part of the world for a week or a year or three years or five years, and that constitute credibility on, on something. You have to go deep. You have to go long to really earn the right to speak on some of these things. And somewhere, whether that was a pure motivation or not, I, I couldn't, maybe say at this point but then somewhere along the way once you commit to go deep with the people then they become your people that it stops being an agenda of any sort and it starts to just be home and the new normal and what's natural and so in some ways i don't know that we have even landed on the idea that living overseas is a permanent thing although we are almost 15 years into it um I don't know. I mean, it, it just kind of... some ways, it still feels like we're taking it a day at a time.
2: Yeah. Well, I love what you said about they become your people. And um, I don't know, Jeff and I were talking a lot about this, and just even with kids, and you've raised your children there. And how does that look?
1: Yeah, because uh, the, the American response would normally be Uh, as a parent, they would say, well, our responsibility is to keep our, our number one responsibility is to keep our kids safe, right? That's a very American concept. And so people that don't understand your context, they might say, well, that's how, you know, this is crazy. How, what, what does that look like for their family? How, How would you respond in that whole context?
0: I think we just fundamentally have a more nuanced view than, than to say our number one responsibility is to keep our kids safe. Of course, We love our kids as much as anyone and want to keep them safe. I think the framework we've chosen is something more akin to our our number one responsibility is to raise high functioning, intelligent, nuanced, loving, service oriented adults. I think that's really what we're trying to do. And I think there might be an inverse correlation. We think there might be an inverse correlation between safety. And that other thing that I just said we want to raise our kids to be, if we isolate our kids in the name of protection and then suddenly expect them to flip a switch at 21 or 26 or whatever and become service oriented, loving, nuanced, kind, worldly in the best sense of like cultured and open to other ideas. I just—I don't know why we would think that you could turn a switch on that. It's, a, it's an orientation. It's an enculturation. You have to be nurtured in that. And that nurturing takes risk every single day.
2: I love that. Did you guys get a lot of uh, flack about this? I mean, I could only imagine what your parents and other people told you, suggested, all the things. Jess, did you feel any guilt or mom guilt or all the things people put on you for making these types of decisions?
3: Absolutely. I mean, and and still sometimes today, not just for the decisions that, not just for the things that other people say to us, but because this kind of decision does, does come with, well, every decision comes with consequences. And in deciding to raise our family overseas, there are some massive benefits that we have, but there's also all of the like normal things that we've left behind that they don't get, they don't even know about. You know, like our kids won't have the same set of friends for their entire lives and have that safety net to come back to. Family is their safety net. The world just doesn't, it just doesn't work like, you know, small town America or whatever um, whenever you leave small town America. And, and so that leaves them with, with fewer friends who understand who they are and what they're like. And um, there's huge, massive benefits of that. That we see even today, Um, it's not like we're just living for the future of what our kids will be. Mm -hmm. Their their day to day absolutely matters to us. Yeah. Um, But they love it, and and they haven't always loved it, and I don't know if they will always love it. But they can see now. um, I think some of what has been sacrificed for the life that we live, and they choose it, and they tell us like we we don't want to move again. We don't want to live somewhere else. This is home. This is what we know. these are our people, and they spend a lot of time and energy thinking about how to make where we live better and how to be a part of that community and that makes me really proud of them
1: so uh, we kind of jumped into life today, but I'd love for you to kind of explain to people if they're not aware of preemptive love, what is the work that you do today, and what do what are the responsibilities that each of you lead within that organization?
0: We are like big idea kind of people, so we have a hard time. We need to go through some branding sessions, to <laughs> boil everything. <down. laughs>
2: you need a Jeff Steinbarger consultation
0: <laughs> to, to boil everything down to this really simple statement. But I, I don't think it's too much to say that we are trying to create the largest, most diverse, hand-in-hand community of peacemakers on the planet. We, we could say that we we help refugees stand on their own two feet again after war. We could say that we're remaking home for people in conflict, that we show up on the front lines when bombs are still falling, providing food for people, that we do reconciliation in hard places. All those things are true. But the real framework for what we're trying to do is is create a global community of people who live out this thing that we call preemptive love. People who are willing to say the world is Scary as hell, but we're going to love anyway. On the front lines where we live,
2: and both of you do this together,
3: right? Co-founded. Yeah, I would say um, if we simplified our roles down as simple as they could be, that Jeremy is the one who is leading forward all of this vision and thinking. How do we continue doing this? How do we keep walking in this direction? Um, And he, you know, he does that some days a week and other days of the week. He's he's on the ground. Doing the work that leads us to that place, and then my role is um, vice president of international programs. And so, on a day-to-day basis, I'm overseeing all of the the effects of what this decision to love anyway is. So any of our programs that are happening in Iraq, in Syria, in other places around the world, Um, just making sure that people do get the food that they need and that they are being able to stand on their own two feet because this is the ultimate goal. When we can come together as a global community to love one another and to affect change on behalf of one another and to care about one another, then that means that we're meeting those tangible needs um, all around the world, you know, in the neighborhoods right where we live and in the forgotten places that are far away.
1: Now, in the midst of this work, like you guys, I mean, exactly what you were just saying, meeting the needs of the people that you live with. you are in it. You're in it. The reality is that you could spend 100% of every day doing something.
2: Well, yeah. And just being engulfed in this mission um, and almost having it overtake kind of everything. So how have you created some boundaries, right? In that, like with your family, with time with each other, how have you learned to kind of do that for you?
3: I think that um, we got some really good advice early on, and that was that we don't actually have to keep our family separate from the work that we're doing but we can, we can be a family everywhere that we're going in everything that we're doing. And so I always joke about putting my kids in my back pocket and taking them with me wherever I go. And it doesn't mean that we go and do everything together, but all four of us really feel like this is our passion and our vision and what we want to be about as a family together. So it's kind of our family's mission, not just Jeremy's job that he gets up and goes to work every day or my job that I get up and go to work every day, but, but we're all in it together playing our different roles to make that happen. And so I just want to lay that as a foundation for this part of the conversation, because I would say that for most people looking onto our lives, they would probably say, we don't do work-life balance very well. Um, But that's really intentional because we don't actually think that work-life balance is something that is the same from day to day. Instead, we try to think about things more in seasons.
0: Also, we don't view this through a lens of like what is inherently best or righteous for everyone we recognize that there are different kinds of families set up differently and it's not common that a family would all sort of work on one thing together it's not common that two people would even work in the same space together like we do or that those two people would enjoy the responsibility the burden of leadership in that organization so we recognize that our situation is unique, but from that unique place, we are not the best at—we're uh, not even good at, at demarcating, you know, really firm boundaries, if you will, between what when we're on and when we're off, when we're working, when it's family. This is a, a pretty all-consuming vision for the world for us, and that includes then our vision for our kids and our vision for our family. And I think it's a, it's a daily struggle. And when we're not struggling for it, the, the work side, so to speak, or the organizational side is, is probably the default that ends up winning out.
2: So talk a little bit more about, um, Jess, you kind of went into like, we don't really look at work life balance. We look kind of more into about the seasons Talk a little bit more about that. Unpack that a little bit more.
3: Well, I think for a long time, I was reading these books about motherhood and just feeling all of this guilt about dividing up my days in between my work and my kids and exercise and everything was supposed to balance out equally. And I spent so much time trying to balance my life and and then the guilt was actually what was keeping everything off balance because I just always felt like something was unbalanced and it was my fault. If I planned better, I could fix it. And what I have come to realize is that if I can just accept my work and my life for the season that I'm in right now and know that it's going to change, then I can pretty much do anything. And I think that this idea of seasons first came about from a friend who told me when, when Emma was a baby and she had a little baby and um, they kind of got that they started walking and it was a really hard time. And I was like, is it always going to be like this? And she was like, we should just think about this as seasons, you know, and then we can love them for where they are today because we know that the things that we don't like about today will probably change and we should, and the things we do like will change and we're going to miss those things. And so I started thinking about life and seasons when Emma was little and it made those really hard toddler years much more tolerable. And then whenever I started working more full-time, we, we just started applying it to that. And so what is the season? How long is the season going to be? And and who do we need to be in order to be successful in all of those areas? Because 20, 20, 20% of time split equally doesn't actually get us to a place of thriving. But instead, if we can look at our season of life and say, this is what it's going to take to move through this particular season, then we're able to walk through that season um, feeling like we're being successful and feeling like we're accomplishing what we've laid out for our families and, and for our work. And so in the, the early ISIS days in Iraq, that looked like Jeremy being gone a lot. That looked like not knowing if he was going to return home and us making a decision about that for our family. Was this a decision that we were willing to make and how would we spend our time? And it looked like me being home a lot more than, than he was at home. And as those really heavy emergency crisis days have moved behind us for this season of, of life, he's home a lot more with the kids and I'm out traveling more. And that wouldn't have been possible if we were just trying to divide everything up equally and find a perfect balance. But because we think about things in seasons neither one of us had to feel like we're giving up some important part of our career or some important part of our family in order to do the things that we felt like we were supposed to do. Instead, we know this is for just this short period of time right now, and things will change. It gives the freedom to dream. It gives the freedom to be okay with, with where we are in the moment. And I think it's it's just what helps keep us successful and walking forward in a healthy way.
1: That's an incredible thought. I I'd love to uh, ask you a different question, really being, being in Iraq, being in all these other cultures that you're in, I'm curious, what have you learned from that society? Those people that are your friends there um, about family, about marriage uh, that's different and pop more positive in some ways. I'm sure there's things that are not as positive, but some things that are positive things that you've applied to your family that you wish Americans could see that you love about that place.
3: Yeah, I think that's a great question and probably my favorite thing that I've learned in all of these years of life um, in the Middle East is just that family isn't four or five people who call themselves parents and children, but family is so much bigger than that. And each person in the family or the community plays a role in that child's development. And so uh, when I go into a lot of neighborhoods for the first time, I can't even tell which child belongs to, to whom because everyone is parenting all of the children that are out in the street or everyone's parenting all the kids in the park. And it's really beautiful the way that children learn to interact with each other and rely on each other. And they learn to interact with their aunts and uncles or grandparents um, or neighbors in the same way that I think in America, a lot of children mostly just relate to their parents. And that was really eye-opening to me. And it also lifted a huge burden off of me because I no longer have to believe that Jeremy and I are the only best thing for our kids. I, I really believe that when they get those inputs from other people, from our out, like surrounding community, that that helps them to become better people. And it gives them a kind of safety net that they wouldn't have if they could only rely on Jeremy and I.
0: Yeah, I, I was going to say it a little differently, but I think it's ultimately the same thought that we are, as Americans, raised with this, you can do anything you can pull yourself up by your bootstraps, you can win. and this is you know this is particularly true if you come from a place of privilege where where things are bent your way a little bit already, um, which was true for me. And that can become like the overriding normative, default system for how you view the world, which ultimately, And uh, if you take it to its most extreme, it ends up in a very individualistic way of viewing and operating in the world. And there are great things that that can come from that kind of individualism. We we get the ingenuity and innovation and capitalistic sort of gains and, and whatever that we see in American life and Western life in general, but there's a dark side to it that we don't talk about enough. And I think one of the things that we've learned is a kind of slower communal approach, a, a regard for the common good, a regard for society, a regard for my people and history and uh, in a way that's not inherently like the worst kind of tribalism. So I, I think our individualistic, capitalistic impulses, um, the, the Protestant uh, both the Protestant work ethic and the Protestant sort of theological emphasis on personal salvation, all those have been augmented, challenged, rounded out, made more full by a Middle Eastern conception of we belong to something bigger than just our, our nuclear family or my individualistic success. We, we belong to a much deeper rooted history. Like our Our roots run deep, and I'm responsible for my great 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 grandfather's legacy and reputation and and decisions I make today will affect my great 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 grandchildren. That was lost on us before moving and and being fully immersed among our friends as we have been the last fifteen years.
2: so how so <laughs> I think it was actually Monday this week, my daughter asked me, what is an immigrant? because I think I had NPR on the radio or something. But I I guess my question for you is, how, how do you think we should be talking to our kids about refugees and immigrants? And give us some language. What should we be saying to our kids who are wondering and curious and hear a lot of things on
0: media? We try to start with stories. We try to start with real people. Um... You know, in our kids' lives, we start with open-ended questions. We work really hard to not tell our kids what to think and tell our kids where they should land on certain things. We We try to set up open-ended scenarios and ask them to imagine themselves in someone else's shoes. And then we flip the script and ask them to imagine themselves on the other side. So we, we try to get them to play both sides of any conversation. If you were running for your lives, if terrorists came into your town, if, if gang members were going door to door in your town and you needed to run, where would you go? Okay. And then what would you do? And then where would you go after that? And then what happens? We, we try to just tease it out and play it out. And then as soon as they say they would you know, when the story gets to the point where they're seeking asylum in some other country and wishing that a border would be open and wishing they would find hospitality there, then we, we try to ask, okay, and then what? What if millions of people came? What if, what if there was no place for them to work? What if there was no place for them to live? We are driving by right here, these plastic tent cities where people have been living for years, driven from their homes by ISIS. Is, is that a life when the government here and the international aid community here wasn't able to, to help them go that next step toward full flourishing and employment? And there are no easy answers on this. And we try to help our kids at a young age dispense with the idea that our presidents and our governments can find easy, simple, polarized solutions. We expect too much out of our presidents. We expect too much out of our parties. We expect too much when we elect them on sound bites and want them to do simple things for complex problems. And so we've been working for years to make the world more complex for our kids in some ways while still emphasizing what we call this ethos of love anyway. It might be complex, but we're going to love anyway. We might not know the outcome, but we're going to love anyway. So I think that's that's the best I have come up with. Jeremy, you
1: just gave me a whole bunch more work. That's a lot harder to do than just give an answer. I mean, I was hoping that you would just give us this really simple solution, <laughs> right? <laughs> just joking. That was fantastic.
3: Yeah. The other thing that we found is when we just use words with our kids, it's hard for them to understand what we mean or what the concept is. But what they really hold on to is um, the things that we do with them, and so it's important to me, like, this is why I take them along with me is because I want them to be a part of that that process with people. I want them to know people who are different than them. And that means I have to know people who are different than me. That means I have to value those relationships too, if I want my kids to value those relationships and and to be able to understand the nuance of things. Um, I'll never, the other thing that we that we really try to do is never vilify a person for a group of people and not let people be vilified around us. And this is something that Jeremy started in our family as we heard hard stories in front of our kids. And, you know, it's easy to say things like, all of Isis are terrible and they're evil and they're monsters. But when we start to look at people and allow groups of people to be called monsters, then we lose our ability to understand their humanity. We lose our ability to understand that they were created by God for a purpose in the image of God, and I used to think that that this wasn't a concept that our kids could get. Like they cannot, they cannot begin to understand the nuance of people do bad things and people are monsters because there's some really horrible stories that our kids have heard. And then um, we were sitting at the dinner table one night, and and I slipped and said something because we'd heard a really horrific story, and I had just come back from being with women who were held by. ISIS. And I was really frustrated. I was talking to Jeremy and didn't even realize that the kids were paying attention. And and my son, Micah, was like, you know, mommy, it's not, it's not everyone. And you don't know what their life was like before. And you don't know what their experience was. And so maybe we should talk about the things that they did and not about who they are, because they could change and be different people. And Jeremy and I just looked at each other and were amazed that that his little heart and his little voice could hold that kind of nuance and that kind of hope for people who are doing such terrible things. But that's my goal. That's what I want for my kids is I want them to be able to hope for a better world and hold out hope for redemption of people and places and be able to accept that things can be bad and that people can do bad things, but that may not be the the total of who those
2: people are. That's beautiful. When you have been there for 15 years, how are you still holding on to hope when you still see so much devastation and conflict and all the stories and things you hear? How, just even within yourselves um, and just continuing this work, how do you keep holding on to that?
0: I think we actually, in many ways, find it, I mean, we have horrible, despairing days. But in aggregate, we actually find it easier to be hopeful the closer we are to the problem. The further we are from the problem, the more the detailed stuff gets lost. The the humanity gets lost. The individual people and their pain and their stories gets lost. And where those individuals fit in a greater... Context gets lost. So we never feel more hopeless than when we're watching cable
1: news. (laughs) (laughs) That
0: that is the most that's the most context free, human less mediated way of seeing the world that there is. And when when we experience pain, we, we talk a lot in our team about pressing into pain. I think what we mean by that is pressing beyond the mediated to the unmediated experience of the world. So the more unmediated our knowledge is of these things, the more we don't have a mediator or media standing between us, the more hopeful we are. Because even if someone is ripping their clothes and screaming at the heavens, at least we're with them. At least least after the screaming and the crying, we're still there. We're still pressing into it together. And we've seen over these fifteen years, enough people come back from the dead. We we we've seen enough life after death to know that nothing is ever ultimately hopeless. But we we lose sight of that every day when we when we turn on a cable news snippet and and all that humanity, even if it's a even if it's a three minute human interest story, it still somehow is just not the same as being with people. So that's why I say we're about trying to build the most the the, the, the most diverse hand in hand community of peacemakers in the world. That hand in handness, that that diversity is important. We have to be in these situations on the front lines where we live. It's not about civil war in Syria or bombs falling and ISIS type stuff in Iraq. It's it's about pressing into the pain of people's lives right where we already live. That's where these that's where these polarizing battles are playing out. It's in our neighborhoods, it's in our suburbs, it's in our cities. So we are just trying to do our part on the front lines where we live. And and we think if everyone was doing something similar right where they already are, we would have a totally different kind of world. Yeah.
3: And and people wouldn't feel so helpless as they hear these stories. Mm. And I think that's the difference is that when I hear a helpless story, I, I get to do something about it. Um, I get to go sit with people and love them and empathize with with where they are and then give them access points out of where they are. I'm not solving their problem. Um, that's not the way we work. It's problems get solved out of relationship with one another and and walking with one another through that problem to, to the other side of that problem. Um, so for every devastating story that I hear, I'm also hearing a story of hope and a story of progress and a story of families getting to a place where they can thrive together and not just be stuck in the situation. I think when we have to only hear the bad news, that we feel like that's where their story stops and we don't get to be a part of, of seeing the good news come.
1: On a uh, much lighter question... Follow up.
2: Jeff's been thinking about this one for a minute.
1: What does a date night look like in Iraq for the two of you?
3: We love to go eat at fancy restaurants wherever we are in Iraq or in America or in Australia. It doesn't. It doesn't matter where it is. We really enjoy food and we enjoy being at a table with one another without devices. And
0: um, and so fancy is relative to wherever we are. Uh, <laughs> <right>. but, <fancy. laughs> but but I guess. To many people's surprise, Iraq, Syria, um, there's there's still great thriving culture. There's still great hotels. There's great cuisine. So yeah, we, we seek out those places and enjoy just getting alone and spending a couple hours talking. Although, I mean, we should admit a lot of that talking still ends up being about these things. Yeah. <laughs>
3: But I think, and sometimes it feels like it's about work, but other times it's just, this is, this is who we are and who we've chosen to be and we're dreaming and creating together. So, so just like maybe if I had another job and Jeremy had a different job that we would come together and maybe share about some problems that were happening at work and lean on each other. We do that with each other. Um, And, and maybe we would have a different hobby that maybe Jeremy would, would be writing and playing music or. Um, I don't know. I would be crafting somewhere, and we would talk about those things at date night. Instead, we just—I think—we have this really incredible thing where we we have a vision that we want to carry out together, and we have poured our creativity into that, and we lean on each other in that. And and so it doesn't—it doesn't always feel like work. It's it's dreaming and creating side by side in those moments.
0: Yeah, it's amazing to see your hobby energy, your side hustle energy your full-time energy, and your home, family, raising kids, and relationship, marriage energy, all in some ways rowing in the same direction, feeding into the same thing. It it feels like powering up. It feels like leverage. It feels like multiplication, an upward virtuous cycle. It does not usually feel detractive. It feels additive.
3: Yeah, and I think it's the things that we work on separately from one another, that start to make us feel like it's work or like we aren't in it together. Um, and and maybe I'm just starting to realize that right now. But, <laughs> but when we can be in it together and walking forward together, I think it makes things a lot easier. Even the hard times, even when we're furious at each other, it's usually because we're trying to work something out to be done the way that we want it to be done and not the way the other person wants it done. But we know ultimately we're working towards the same vision. And so we can fight through it to get to that place.
2: All right. So the last question that we ask everybody, is it possible to change the world, stay in love and raise a healthy family?
0: Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I don't know is what more to add.
2: <laughs> Jess, do you agree? Cause we have many couples that don't, so you know.
3: Hmm. No, I do agree, but I'm I'm not going to say it's easy. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to say that that it comes without work. I'm going to say that. Or cost. Yeah, I'm going to say that whatever we want, whatever we want to accomplish together is always going to have a cost, and it's always going to be a fight, and it's always, you know, every everything worth doing is hard to do, and it you have to get over a lot of different mountains, and you just have to choose to do it together, and so. I think when we first got married, and when I first thought about having a family, I thought it was going to be happy, and all the all the pho- nice photos all the time, and we were going to have all these amazing memories on a daily basis. And and that's just that's not the reality. And so I think seasons come into play in this conversation about love and work as and family as well. And just me knowing that sometimes sometimes we get busy, and sometimes we don't agree, but those. Those are seasons. And ultimately, we made we made this decision to be together and to do this together. And as long as we lean into that and we get past whatever is frustrating between us, then then it is possible.
1: Love it. Now, if someone is inspired, which I know they will be from this conversation and um, want to get more involved in preemptive love, where, where is the great starting place for them to plug in?
0: There's a lot of information at preemptivelove.org. The thing that we are most excited about right now are these local communities that we're setting up all over the U.S. and and all over the world, ultimately called the Frontline Community. We're trying to help people gather together with people from different walks of life, right, left, up, down, in, out. We're, We're asking people to come together. We're designing these communities so they're co-hosted by people who who come from across some kind of difference and we're trying to get people together in the same room in community not just once but in an ongoing dedicated basis people who will come together to give and gather together and go together out into the world to serve and it's it's just been really exciting so we'd love for people to look at connecting to the frontline community where you are, or if you are already living this kind of life and would like to co-host one of these communities on the front lines where you live, we'd love to talk to people about that as well.
2: That's awesome. Thank you guys so much for your time.
1: And now it's time for the breakdown.
2: I had pages and pages of notes. It was so good. I
1: kind of want to listen to it twice.
2: I think you should. Everybody should. And I will too. My, one of my favorite parts that they talked about was when they were talking about how they want to raise their kids. And one of the quotes they said is, we work really hard to not tell our kids what to think. And That's just so good. I mean, I love how they were talking about how they try to look at all the kind of perspectives and they keep playing out stories to never vilify one side, to never to try to see all the angles of the sides um, instead of making one part bad and one part good, but really seeing things from each perspective and letting the kids play that out and not just giving the standard cookie-cut answers. I love it. Mm. I love it so much.
1: Yeah, I, I was thinking about that and trying to think of how I, would, how I would do that with our kids. And one of the things I think it would take is me being willing to not get to resolution fast.
2: Right. Mm-hmm.
1: Like how Jeremy was talking about It's like, okay, if this happened, what would you, where would you go? what would you do and then what would happen and then what would happen and then what would happen? Right. You got
2: to keep playing it out.
1: And you I can't was like, just
2: end the conversation. <laughs> I was like,
1: man, that means I gotta be really patient. Yeah. Yeah. And I gotta be willing to let that, I don't know, like let those answers come out as long as it takes. It's kind of like that There's
2: no easy answer. It I is. think that's the, they know about the complexity of the situation in the Middle East, and they realize that there are no easy answers, um, and I think because of that, they're okay with the unknown and the complexity of it
1: all. I did not think that was the first thing you were going to bring up. Well, I thought you okay. were going to say we feel most we feel the most helpless in watching cable news.
2: Oh, I could go days on this, everybody. Days. Um that I definitely highlighted starred about ten times. Um but I really love when he talked about the in that same context about basically that when you are closer to the problem, it's more easy to be hopeful. I really believe that true. I think it's a hundred percent true. Oh, I'm getting choked up in the work that I do, um in with poverty and medicine and Uh, and so it's so much easier for me to be hopeful, um, because I'm close to the people Mm. and I see the little wins every day and I know them so well. Um, yeah. Uh,
1: another thing I wanted to bring up in this conversation was the, the, we talked about like, um, the kids, the role of a parent with their kids is to keep them safe, right? That. And a lot of people still believe that. And there's listeners here that they think that's their normal priority. Now, they're not saying that they shouldn't keep their kids safe, but he, he had this instant response. Our number one responsibility is to raise nuanced, responsible, loving, kind, cultured, open to new ideas that will someday become adults. And <laughs> this idea that that doesn't just happen when they're 18. If you, if you shelter them from all hurt in the world and all the challenges of the world and all the problems of the world, they'll never understand actually how to critically think about this stuff. And, man, so I was like...
2: Yeah, he literally said it's an inverse correlation Yeah, <laughs> between safety and that type of child you an want to raise. And awareness
1: yeah. and understanding and problem-solving. Mm, I yeah. thought that was a really um, powerful statement to consider and is really challenging as an American to process.
2: But yet we should be processing that every day, I think, right? Mm -hmm. I also love uh, when they talk kind of, it was a lot more just when she was talking about the work-life balance versus seasons. You could really feel how much guilt she felt when it was all about balance you know 20% 20% you know trying to get that
1: all right it's like trying to make everything equal yeah
2: it's, it's impossible. all on her all on her shoulders and if it's not balanced out then i just failed and you know and and i hope you hear with lover work that we're not really talking about that i hope you hear us talking about how it is so hard and that it's practically impossible to have this work life balance Um, which is why we're talking about the tensions in this area. But I really like how she changed it over and switched her mindset to seasons and how there's a season for everything and there's a lot more grace that can happen in that and freedom from guilt that can happen.
1: I feel like I have more stars that we could just keep going point by point of everything that they said or we could encourage you to re-listen to the entire episode again. (laughs) If you missed something, just listen to it again. Because, like, basically, what we're doing at this point is reiterating every single I thing know. that they said.
2: Yes. So, comment on Instagram when you listen. Tell us something that you learned. We'd love to hear more from you. We'd love to hear what resonates with you. Um, so, we're at Lover Work on Instagram. Mm-hmm. Also, on Facebook, you can look us up. You can comment there.
1: I feel like this is one of those episodes that you should share with a friend and go have coffee and be like, what was your takeaway? because we should talk about Cause it. Cuz this stuff is hard. This isn't e- this is these are not easy topics to consider and and put into your daily life.
2: Yes, especially so, in America.
1: So maybe do that. Maybe text it to a friend right now and then have coffee and and share about it and learn together. I love it. That's another episode of Love at Work. We will see you next week.
3: This episode was produced by DJ Oak Diggy for Soul Graffiti Productions.